Um, and turn to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. Um, today we're going to be looking at verses 5 to 13. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 to 13. I'm going to read through it now. And it isn't there um, in a big chunk, Colby, on the, on the overhead, but the verses will come as we deal with them. So, um, Hebrews 12, verses 5 to 13. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by Him. For the Lord disciplines the one He loves and chastises every son whom He receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure talking about hardship, the hardship of life. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons and daughters. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? And if you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them, Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of our spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but He disciplines us for our good, that we may share in His holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. Almost feels like a, uh, an understatement, doesn't it? But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands, strengthen your weak knees, and make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. This is God's Word. So last week, we were exploring the importance of having realistic expectations. We talked about expectations, didn't we? And if our expectations are not based on reality, then we're setting ourselves up for a lot of heartache and disappointment. And Hebrews teaches us that if we understand reality, we should expect life to be like a marathon race. It's as simple as that. And marathon races are hard. Marathon runners suffer. They have to endure. I don't know about you, but I... I had the build for cross-country when I was at school. And so I used to do a lot of cross-country running. And I, and I can assure you, I didn't do it because I enjoyed the actual running. I didn't do it for the pleasure that I experienced when I was at Oriel School, jumping through some sort of a mud obstacle and everything. The reason why I did it was for what came after I crossed the finish line. Unfortunately, I wasn't a very good runner, so I never really, <laughs> really enjoyed the, uh, the prize. But that's what marathon runners run marathons for. They don't do it for the pleasure that they experience in the race. They do it for what they get after they cross the finish line. And so the message here in Hebrews is very clear. It's saying don't expect your rewards in this life but rather focus on crossing the finish line where you're going to receive the ultimate reward. The best is yet to be. The reward that God will give us when we get to heaven, and then the reward of spending an eternity with God in heaven. 
And this is why finishing the race is just so important. Do you remember the words of John Stephen Aquari of Tanzania? He was sent 5,000 miles to run a marathon race in the Mexico 1968 Olympics. And fairly close to the start, he fell and dislocated his knee. And so they had to put his knee back into joint. And then he was experiencing a lot of pain. But he finished the race. And these were the words that he said. My country didn't send me 5,000 miles to start the race, but to finish the race. It's the same for us. God hasn't given us life in his family just to start the race. He's given it to us so that we will finish the race, so that that reward will be given to us. And so we asked the question, and we answered the question, how can I make sure that I finish the race? And there were two things. First of all, we need to toss away, throw away. And, and then the second thing that we need to do is we need to look to Jesus. So we carry a lot of excess weight in life. Remember we talked about this. Things that are not intrinsically bad, but we need to get rid of them so that we can be race fit. doesn't make sense to carry a kitchen sink on a hike. But a kitchen sink, nothing wrong with a kitchen sink, it's just going to weigh you down on a hike. So we get rid of these things that are holding us back. And then things that are bad, things like sin, we need to get rid of those because they're just going to hamper us, it's just going to trip us up in the race. And then we look to Jesus because just simply focusing on throwing away excess weight and sinning is not going to get us there. We need to recognize that it's actually Jesus who makes it all possible. He makes it possible for us to throw away the excess weight and the sin. And so we look to Jesus and his credentials. He is the author and perfecter of our faith. Remember, author speaks of him being the pioneer, of being the pathfinder, of being the guide. He's going to be guiding you in the race. He's the perfecter of, of our faith in the sense that he's removed all the roadblocks. There's still obstacles, but he'll help us to get through those. But all the roadblocks to crossing the finish line, he's removed. He's the perfecter of our faith. He did it for joy. We must also do it for joy. He did it. He suffered and endured on the cross for the joy of knowing that he would spend eternity with each one of us. We endure because we know that we're going to spend eternity with God. And the thought of that, the joy of doing that, keeps us going. We also look to Jesus at his position. He, after he had finished the race, it says he sat down at the right hand of the Father. That position of sovereignty, of power and control, of governance over the whole universe. But it, he only sat down after the race. And we will also sit down with Christ. The Bible tells us that we will rule with Christ over the new heavens and the new earth. He will be above us and we will rule under him. And so we remember that. It helps us to keep going. It makes it worthwhile to throw off the excess weight. And then, of course, endurance. Sometimes God calls us to obedience, which will result in suffering. But how many of us have actually suffered to the point of shedding our blood like Jesus did on the cross? And so this was what we talked about last week. Now, since marathons involve suffering and hardship, how are we going to cope? And this is what we're going to be talking about today. It's the big idea of today's sermon. How do we cope with 
the fact that life often brings hardship and suffering. And what we need to do, the big idea of today's passage, is to view that suffering and that hardship as discipline. And so here's a roadmap of where we're going to be heading today. The first thing that we need to do is we need to identify or define what discipline actually is. Because the biblical Greek word for discipline is slightly different in meaning to what we would say discipline is. And so we're going to have a look into that because I don't want you to get confused. And then we're going to move on to why does God discipline us? It's all coming out of the passage and how should we respond? So first of all, what is discipline? Well, that Greek word that's translated discipline, it's used six times in the passage. So we know it's an important concept, an important theme, in fact, it's central to this passage. And it's used both as a noun, paideia, and also as a verb, paideo. So that's the original Greek biblical word for discipline. What does discipline mean in English? It means to train someone to obey rules or a code of behavior using punishment to correct disobedience. So we're immediately looking at that and we're thinking, every time that this word discipline comes up in a passage, does it mean that God is only talking about punishing us for disobedience? Or is there another dimension? Are there other dimensions to what that biblical word discipline means? So what we're going to do is we're going to just look at that definition and see whether it is borne up by the passage and also look to see whether there's evidence that actually spreads that definition further. So first of all, it says to train someone. So is it training? Well, just look at verse 11. It says, for, for the moment, all discipline, paideia, seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So the biblical concept of discipline is that it involves training. That word there, do you recognize it, gymnazo? It's the same word um, that our word gym comes from. So when you go to the gym, you go to train. So, idea involves training. But the definition says that to discipline is to train using punishment to correct disobedience. Is that the case in the passage? So let's have a look in verse 6. It says there, For the Lord disciplines, paideo, the one he loves, and, here's another word, chastises, mastiguo, every son whom he receives. That word, mastiguo, in the Greek, means literally to whip or to scourge. He's using it figuratively here, but that was the original meaning of the word. It was to whip or to scourge, which means that the writer um, has in mind that sometimes God does punish us. But notice that the Lord disciplines and chastises. He's not saying disciplines by chastising. So the disciplining is obviously different to the punishment. There may be a certain amount of punishment involved in discipline, but it's not the whole picture. So, 
Is discipline training by using punishment to correct disobedience? Yes, it is. But it isn't only that. Folks, I wouldn't want you to think that God is always looking for ways to punish you. Very occasionally, He needs to. You could say to yourself, to, to me today, look, Ian, I don't want a capricious ogre who punishes me. Neither do I. But I do want a loving Father who, when He sees that I'm headed towards danger, warns me about it, and then if I don't listen to His warning, gives me a little cluck to make sure that I pay attention. That's the kind of sense of it. And you know, when I look back over my life, um, I can see a few occasions. It doesn't happen often. But even when I think of my own children, I didn't often need to punish disobedience with a smack or something like some sort of punishment. Didn't often need to happen. But it's sometimes it does need to happen. But there's so much more. So, it's about training. It is about punishment occasionally for our own good from a loving Father. And, you know, I just have to say also as an aside, many of us have a picture of, of God as being like our Father. So this idea that God might punish us, that might be really scary and upsetting to you because you had a Father who maybe punished you excessively or didn't punish you with wisdom or didn't punish you with love. We're not talking about that. We're talking about a Father who loves us who's doing things for our best. So is it training? Is it using punishment to correct disobedience? Yes, but that's only a part of the picture. And then the last part of the definition is that talks about uh, rules and the code of behavior. Is it only about rules and only about obeying a code of behavior? I don't think so. You know, the athletic imagery that's used running a marathon and exercising in the gym it, it implies, the next slide, that um, Paideo is not only about someone training someone to obey the rules or a code of behavior, but it's also about training to develop character and to develop muscle and strength. That's what you do when you're training in the gym. So you're not following a particular code of, of conduct, but you are exercising in order to build muscle. And so God allows hardship to happen in our lives so that He can train us, so that He can develop our endurance, so that He can develop our struggle muscles. The wonderful thing is that He's in control of all of that, so He doesn't allow anything too big to come along, just enough to strengthen us, to prepare us for the next struggle that's coming along in life. So let's just close now in this section of definition and talk about what discipleship, that biblical Greek concept of discipleship really was. That English word discipline and the way it's defined, it's only part of what the Greek word means. At the time, it was used to, to refer to bringing up children. Children that need direction, teaching, instruction, training, coaching, and discipline as we've defined it today. So it wasn't just the, the discipline as we've defined it, obeying a code of conduct, being punished if you don't. It was also about giving direction, it was about teaching, it was about instructing them perhaps. 
in, a, in some sort of skill that they could use in life. I'm sure Jesus was instructed by his father in how to become a carpenter. It was about training. It was about coaching. So think in terms of raising children to full maturity. That's what that Greek word means, discipline. Raising children to full maturity, spiritual, moral, emotional, and intellectual. And when you do that for your own children, there's all of those different aspects that come into it, isn't there? There's some instruction. If you, if you want to um, drive the car, then this is how you drive it. There, there's some teaching. This is right, this is wrong. Sometimes there's some structured consequences for disobedience. <laughs> a little bit of punishment. That sometimes is necessary. But it's always from a sense of love and with the goal of spiritual, moral, emotional, and intellectual. You know, that's, if, if we do that for our own children, that's what God does for us. And God uses hardship. That's what this passage is telling us to achieve all of these things. So, let's move on to the next question. Why does God discipline us at all? And remember, now we're starting to talk about discipline not as we understand it from the English definition, but as we've defined it of this upbringing a child, promoting spiritual, emotional, physical, and so on growth. Why does God do that for us? Well, I mean, the first reason I think just makes sense he, he does it because we're his children. Discipline, raising a child, goes with sonship. So look at verse 7. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons and daughters. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? And if you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. So why does God discipline us? Because it goes with being His children. That's what loving fathers and mothers do for their children. Second reason, it brings respectful submission. Besides this, we had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of Spirits and live? Folks, I think the biggest danger to us as human beings is that we want to be autonomous. We want to be God. We want to be the boss. And God in His mercy needs to teach us that He's the boss and that we need to submit to Him. And He uses discipline as we've defined it, that holistic uh, definition. He uses that to bring us into submission to Him. And folks, that is the best place to be. Because we were not created to be our own gods. We were not created to be our own bosses. No, we were created by a father who wanted us to have a loving relationship with him and to be in submission to him. He's far better qualified to be the boss than you are. I can assure you of that. I've discovered it many times in my life. I'm sure you have as well. And so... This is what discipline does. It brings that respectful submission. It brings us to that place where we respect God and we're prepared to submit to Him because that's what's best for us as His children. So, He disciplines us because it goes with being children. It brings us into respectful submission. 
But there's another reason, and I love this one, because we always talk about the fact that we want to be a transformational church, a place where people can be changed, where we can look at our lives and say, I'm not the same person today that I was a year ago, and I'm not going to be the same person in a year's time that I am today. Transformation, that's what we want to be. And so look at verse 10. It says, For they, referring to our earthly fathers, disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but God disciplines us for our good that we may share in His holiness. So what he's doing here is he's contrasting the discipline of earthly dads with that of our heavenly dad. Our earthly dads disciplined us for a short time while we were still children. But our heavenly dad continues to discipline us, even as adults, over the full length of our lives. Why? For our good, that we might share in his holiness. I think it's important to differentiate between the discipline that a father brings and the discipline that God brings. You know, many fathers discipline their children, and mothers as well, in a way that seems best to them, but often it falls short, doesn't it? Because we're just failed human beings. We don't necessarily do it in the right way. Sometimes we're doing it from the wrong motives. But our Father in Heaven is not like that. Sometimes the discipline that my dad brought actually left hurt in my life. It left scars. But our Heavenly Father is not like that because He's perfect. And believe me, I don't judge my earthly dad because I know I've done the same things to my children as well. But thank God we have this earthly father who's doing it not just in a way that seems best to him. It's in a way that he knows is best for our good that we may share in His holiness. And I don't know if you've noticed this, but when I'm sharing in the holiness of God, when I'm becoming more and more like God and there's no conscious sin in my life or I'm not indulging any bad habits, it's actually the best place to be. It's a wonderful space to be in. And, and that's God's goal. He wants us to be living the way He originally created us to be. And He created us to be like Him, to be images of Him, to be holy. And so that's why He disciplines us, because He knows it's bad for us. And we know that when we're not walking in obedience to God, it's a miserable place to be, especially as sons and daughters of God, because the Holy Spirit is constantly talking to us and saying, no, Ian, this is not right, this is not good, there's no peace. Look at Romans 8.28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Whatever, it's hap whatever is happening in your life, good things and, as we've seen from today's passage, bad things. Things that are bringing hardship and suffering. God works in all things together for the good for those who are called according to His purpose. Now listen to what His purpose is. For, though he, for those He foreknew, He also predestined, here's the purpose, to be conformed to the image of His Son. That's what God wants for you. He wants you to be holy. He wants you to be conformed to the image of His Son. To be like Jesus, to be pointing people to Jesus. 
And so he will do whatever it takes in our lives to make sure that we are gradually being changed and transformed into the likeness of Christ. So, verse 10 contrasts the discipline of earthly dads with that of our Father in heaven. And I just have to say again, you know, if, if you had a, a harsh father who, who didn't discipline you fairly, this is not what we're talking about. We need to go beyond that and, and, and ask God and the Holy Spirit to help us see just how much God loves us. In fact, He is love. The Bible doesn't say He's loving. It says He is love. So we're contrasting. We've done that discipline of earthly fathers with our Father in heaven. And then in verse 11, it contrasts the present pain that we experience in the race, in the marathon race, um, with the future outcome. We should always be doing that, hey? Looking to see what this is achieving. So it says there, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Just look at the next slide. I often think of a rugby team. You know, none of that is really pleasant. It's not much fun to be doing tackling practice. Um, unless you're a bit of a psycho like Matthew, who loves doing tackling practice, or he used to. But um, it's, it's, not, it's not fun, it's painful, it's uncomfortable, pushing the scrum machine. But you know, the coach is doing it to prepare you for the game. And all of those teams that are preparing for the World Cup, just imagine the pain and the suffering and the hardship that they're going through. Preparing themselves for the World Cup, there's going to be instruction involved, there's going to be training involved, there's going to be a little bit of punishment involved. If you guys are not going to listen to what I'm saying, you need to run around the field five times. <laughs> it all happens, doesn't it? But the goal of it is not the pain and the suffering, it's what comes if they win the World Cup. It's the same for us. It's what comes when we cross the finish line. God's discipline just makes us steadily more righteous, more and more like Christ. And being more like Christ, it actually carries its own priceless reward because of the fruit that it produces. The writer obviously wants to emphasize peace there. Could we just go back to it? Uh, where are we? Verse 11, yeah. The peaceful fruit of righteousness. You know, the, the more righteous we become, the more like God we become, the more peace we enjoy in our lives. And don't you find that peace is just one of the most important, um, valuable commodities in life? I could be going through almost anything, but if I have peace, there's no peace for the wicked, isn't it? If I have peace, then I can get through it. Right, the Apostle James, he said this. Let's just go to, there it is. He says, count it all joy, my brothers. In other words, look at the pros, look at the cons, and arrive at the bottom line. The bottom line, once you've done all of that counting, what should we count it? We should count it joy. When you meet trials of various kinds, why would we count it as joy? He says, for you know... That the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, endurance, perseverance, all the same word. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you might be perfect and complete, 
not lacking anything. Folks, it's almost as if he's saying that perseverance is like a coach working on our lives. He works on our lives. And, and we must allow him, steadfastness, to have to do his complete work in us. Why? So that we will be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. You know, often we don't keep going. Sometimes we don't endure. And so perseverance isn't able to finish the work that God wants it to do in us so that we will be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So just to sum this bit up, that next slide, discipline is hardship with a purpose. Oh, sorry, actually I didn't put it in a slide. Um, discipline <coughs> is hardship with a purpose. So, God disciplines us because it goes with sonship, it brings that respectful submission, puts us into right, right position with God, and it transforms us. Now, if this is the case, how should we respond? And this comes in verses 12 and 13, where he tells us very accurately how we should respond. Verse 12. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. The first thing that we need to do when we're going through hardship and trial is to encourage ourselves. We actually need to self-counsel. It's very important, folks. We need to learn how to counsel ourselves. And I've noticed that when I'm going through hardship and when I'm struggling, that I tend to treat myself really harshly. We mustn't do that. Instead of treating ourselves harshly, we should encourage ourselves. Lift up your hands. Strengthen your weak knees. And the other thing that I'm tempted to do when I'm going through hardship and struggling is that I'm, I'm, I'm tempted to blame other people around me and to treat other people harshly as well. We mustn't do that. We must encourage ourselves. We must encourage the people around us. So, encourage yourself. Encourage others. How do we do that encouragement? Well, remember, it's thinking about all the things that we've been talking about today. I'm going through this hard bit, but, hardship, but you know what? It's going to be okay. God is in charge. He's working this for my good. It goes with sonship. As a result of this, I'm going to be complete and mature, not lacking in anything. Can you see all the things that I'm saying to myself to encourage myself? That's what we need to do. Go to these scriptures. Encourage yourself with them. And then the second thing that we must do is live righteously. He says there, and make straight paths for your feet. Make straight paths. In other words, live righteously. Follow God's path. Make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Folks, what happens when God brings pressure in our lives? I, 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 had, I had a particular experience of this when I had a sinus infection for a full year and ended up having two different operations to try and sort it out. What I discovered when that pressure increased in my life because of circumstances, I discovered that actually there was some lameness in me. I was lame in certain areas. I was weak in certain areas. And those weaknesses, that lameness, needed to be healed. Now, if you're lame, you need to make sure that you walk on a nice, steady path so that over time 
your lameness can be healed, isn't it? You don't want to be going bundu bashing when you're lame, because it's just going to make your lameness worse. So what he's saying here is that walk in God's paths, do things the way that God wants you to do them, so that whilst you're doing that, you have a chance to be healed. And that's what's going to happen. God will, you know, he's not exposing that lameness just to make you feel bad about yourself. And that's where it's so tempting to be hard on yourself. Because you start to realize, gee, I'm weak. I'm weak in this particular area. I've got a real anger issue. Instead of getting down on myself, just say, okay, God is exposing that because he wants to deal with it. Now, I'm not going to do sinful things. I'm not going to try and escape from the pain, maybe by drinking too much or hitting pornography sites or whatever it might happen to be, doing wrong things. No, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to carry on walking on the straight and narrow path so that my lameness has a chance to be healed. So just in conclusion today, folks, it's, it's important for us to have the right expectation of life. Let's go and face the future with the expectation that life is like a marathon race. It is hard. It is tough. And then let's have this view that the hardship and the toughness that we experience is actually designed by God to make us better, to make us more and more into His likeness, to train us, to make us stronger for the next um, uh, obstacle in the race so that we'll be able to go that and keep going until we cross the finish line. That, that, that's the way that we need to view life. Let's just pray together. But so I just have to say that on the few occasions when God punishes us, He's, he's not doing it um, so that we'll be... Well, he's not doing it... Well, we, we're not saved, let me put it this way, we're not saved through that punishment. Um, the reason why we're saved is through faith in Christ through his death and his resurrection and what he suffered on the cross. So, every one of us, if we put our faith and our trust in Jesus, we are in right standing with God. The punishment is not going to put us into right standing with God so that we'll be saved. It's, it's happening for our own good to protect us and to make sure that we just keep running the race until we cross the finish line. Let's just pray. Father God, I, I just want to pray for every person here. Um, I know that we'll all be responding to this word in so many different ways, depending on what we're experiencing in our lives, and also de depending largely on, on the experience that we have with our own fathers and the way they raised us. Father, I'm just asking that you would take away any confusion here. I pray that you would take away any deceit that Satan would seek to bring because of the experiences that we've had in the past. Just help us to have a clear understanding of how much you love us 
and of how you were in the business of training us, of encouraging us, of instructing us, of teaching us, of leading us. And Father, we just want to submit ourselves to you as that loving Father who is committed to our growth and to our change. And we just hand our lives over to you, hand things over to you, and just ask you to do what you do best, which is changing us into the likeness of Christ. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.